Let's begin reading in verse 1, Matthew 16. Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and be, be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Is it because we have taken no bread? But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not under yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I do, did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jer Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it, will find it. But what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, we yield our hearts to you. We thank you for your amazing word that will outlive the heavens and the earth. Lord Jesus, you said that that would happen. And so we know that your word already tells us that you value your word in our lives. And Lord, we want to have that, that be the standard in our lives. We don't want the world to be the standard. We don't want other Christians to be the standard. 
We want your word to be the standard. So we recognize that. We want to give you praise and honor and worship for uh, giving us your holy word. We pray, Lord, that we would honor you by obeying it, by your grace and by your power. Set this time aside for your holy use. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. It's a critical chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to see who Jesus is and we're going to see what he came to do. And, and he, this, this kind of adversarial relationship between the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders and the Lord Jesus is being ratcheted up uh, a little bit. And it's going to kind of in, increase the pressure. We're told in verse 1 that then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now, you may remember last week when we looked at chapter 15 that the, the chapter began with us being told that the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem asked him a question and wanted to test him as well. And we talked about the fact that, uh, that these religious leaders, easy for me to say, had come from Jerusalem to oppose him formally. It was organized opposition. We've gone over that many times. So, But this time it's a little bit more than that because notice it says that the Pharisees, in verse 1, and Sadducees came. Now that is noteworthy. That shows that they are even ratcheting it up even more, and this is why. The Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other. They were opposing groups in Judaism, among the religious leaders. They weren't the only ones. There were also the zealots and there were other groups and so forth. But the Pharisees averaged about 5,000 working men. They weren't professional clergy, as people like to say. They were working men. The Sadducees were the professional religious people. They were the those that, that they made money off people selling and, and so forth in the temple uh, ripping people off. And they had that, they were in control of all that. And they had most of the control in that time. Uh, related to the, the Jewish religious activity that happened. They were more powerful, had more power than the Pharisees, but they hated each other. Uh, and they were only united three times in the New Testament. They're united against John the Baptist. They became united against the Lord Jesus, as we're starting to see here. And then later in the New Testament, we'll see they unite against the Apostle Paul. They don't unite against anybody else. It only took extreme uh, situations in their minds or in their eyes to be able to just to kind of put up with each other because they had a common enemy in the Lord Jesus because they hated the Lord Jesus so much and they hated John the Baptist so much and they hated Paul the Apostle so much. But when they came together, it was powerful. It was always things happen as a result that wasn't good. They actually could get a lot done in their adversarial relationship with whomever they came against. And so uh, they asked this question, you know, uh, what's this sign? We need a sign. Notice the end of verse 1, from heaven. This isn't just any sign. We want a sign from heaven. Something supernatural like all of a sudden making the sky open up and having, you know, this some some stars do something or angels or I mean they wanted something really really significant by asking the question they are demonstrating that they reject all the previous signs that Jesus has already revealed to them namely just his identity just just this qualifications for being the Messiah was enough and should have been enough the Lord Jesus rebuked those 
two disciples on the road to Emmaus, you may remember, not because they didn't believe the women were testifying, but because they were slow of heart to believe all that the Scriptures had said. And it, it tells us there in John that from Moses all the way through the prophets that he expounded on himself and how the Christ must suffer. There was plenty in the Old Testament for anybody to know that the Lord Jesus fulfilled uh, that that role of being the Messiah. But there was all these miracles they did on top of that. And so... Um, they're saying that all these previous things were illegitimate and and all the things that they had seen were not good enough to prove that he was the Messiah. And so he answered and said in verse 2, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening, like you know clouds in there too. And he says hypocrites, which means an actor, actors, You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Notice the word discern there. There is discernment to know this, these signs of the times. And we hear that phrase a lot, don't we, in our culture? We hear it on the news. Some people quote, you know, these are the signs of the times. And, and, and that's where it comes from. Jesus said, but he was in a negative sense that you don't discern the signs of the times. So notice he says there's more than one sign already. Signs plural. You already had plenty of signs and, and, and you have missed them. And so they had the ability to, to perceive physical things very well. And Jesus is saying, you have the same ability in, a, in the sense to recognize the signs of the times because the Messiah was supposed to come in right now and you were supposed to recognize them. And God went out of his way, both from messianic prophecies to the Messiah being a miraculous uh, Messiah in terms of his ministry, that you should have seen this just as much as you currently see that weather is going to be a certain way based on what you see in the sky. You have no excuse. That's the that's the basic premise of this or the, the thesis of it is you have no excuse. You can discern the physical. You have everything you need to do that. And you should be able to discern the signs of the times, the spiritual significance of what's what's going on. And that's why he says in verse 4, a wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. So he calls them wicked and adulterous. Why does he call them wicked? Because again, they have rejected the clear signs that God has already provided and they're purposely rejecting. It's not that they can't believe, it's that they won't believe. They won't believe, and, and, that's, and there's a lot of wickedness today related to that. And people have way more than enough evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, but yet they still, in the face of all that evidence, reject them, reject him. You're never going to talk anybody into the kingdom of God. I was told to me as a new believer, you cannot argue, or I didn't listen, <laughs> you can't argue people into the kingdom and I would spend hours and hours arguing and arguing. And that was even before, you know, social media and all these things. And I have, I have, I must confess to you, I have wasted a lot of time in the past on Facebook and these other places debating and so forth. Not for very long, but I did waste enough time to realize that there's no fruit from that. I don't even debate at all whatsoever on social media. So if you want to debate me, do it in person. And then I'll let, you know, Dave Miller handle all my all my all my uh, issues with that, and, and uh, <clears throat> you're not supposed to. T- 
not supposed to talk back. That's not allowed. Uh, also, he, he calls them adulterous. Calls them adulterous. Now, why does he call them adulterous? That's, I mean, is he talking about physical relations? Like these Pharisees and Sadducees were adulterers, and, and they likely were in many of them. But he's going something greater, deeper, actually worse than that. If, you, if that, there can be things that are worse than that. It's spiritual adultery. All through the Old Testament, God communicated that the Jewish people, that, that they were, that he was uh, married to them or, or betrothed to them and so forth. And they were committing, these Pharisees, these religious leaders and this generation at that time, that want, anyone that wanted a sign, that they were demonstrating that they've already committed spiritual adultery against God. And he's saying, you're adulterous. You've already not been faithful. If you'd be faithful, you would know my word. You would know that there's no sign that's needed. Any additional signs are not required and so forth. And so he says that no sign will be given except of the prophet Jonah. Now, we've seen this before. We've seen him say this. And, and he's going to mention this in other places, that, that Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of a, a fish or in the, in the belly of a fish. So shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. So that is the sign. Notice it says the, and in English it's singular because we don't have a plural form of the, but in Greek there's a plural form of the, and it's the in, it's singular the in the Greek as well. There's one sign that's going to be demonstrated after all that's already been demonstrated. One sign, the sign, it says that in the middle of verse 4, the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he doesn't even tell them what it is. He elaborated before. I don't know if you remember that but he elaborated and explained it a little bit. Now he just says, that's the sign, and, no, and you'll, you'll see. And you know, actually, there were Pharisees that came to Christ as a result of the resurrection. There were Pharisees that came to Christ before the resurrection and after the resurrection. And so some of them did receive that sign, but a lot of them did not. And, and they, in fact, they, they didn't even record that temple curtain being rent from top to bottom it's you know, 30 feet high and two feet thick or whatever. They didn't record that as even happening. But why wouldn't they do that? Because, I mean, it's obvious if, you, if, if that happened and God did that, you, you, there was something wrong going on. Uh, you may have you know, murdered or killed your Messiah. So no one wants that in the record book, so they just you know, keep it out of there. Now, he continues in verse 5, says, Now, when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. So we can relate to that, right? You ever forget your lunch? Forget something to eat? You forget to plan ahead? You know, we can relate to that. I've done that many times. I know my kids have, and so we all forget something to take what we need. And then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves. And see, any time that they should have known this by now, this is his third year public ministry. You reason among yourselves, it's not private. <laughs> you know, the Lord Jesus has, knows what you're thinking and saying. You know, they reason among themselves saying, it is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? See, they were concerned that they hadn't brought bread. They were concerned about it. They didn't trust that they were their needs were going to be met and so forth and somehow they're thinking him bringing talking about leaven and bringing up leaven is a clue to them and you know he he didn't really he didn't really just hide stuff when he wanted to tell them something he told them something he wasn't speaking to them in parables like he was the other people 
He spoke plainly to them. And if he wanted to rebuke them over not bringing physical bread, he would have done that. But so they're thinking there's some kind of, you know, people make uh, messages that are kind of shrouded, like a little bit like you're supposed to get it and you don't get it. You know, he doesn't do that. And, and they're, they're worried about it. But it, he reveals their their lack of trust or faith in him that he will provide for them and they'll have food um, because that's what he's dealing with. He says, oh, you little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You know, the disciples just don't get it, do they? And it comforts us because we don't get it so many times. You know, that could have been us going right there. All of us in this room going, maybe it's talking about the fact that we didn't bring any lunch with us, didn't bring bread, and now we're how are we going to eat and so forth? That could have been us just as easily as it was them. And I love how the Bible's honest with people's shortcomings, with their sin, all the, I mean, the whole Bible is filled with dirty laundry and just the messiness of things and people's lives and sin. It doesn't hold back and sanitize any of it. And I am so thankful because our lives are not neat and pretty either. They're, they're, they're a mess and there's dirty laundry and things going on. And, and I love just the honesty of the scriptures. The Bible's the only book that would tell the truth about man. We're not basically good and need a little help. We're evil and dead in our sins and need to be made alive spiritually. That's then God tells us the truth about ourselves. It's the only religion, because Christianity is a religion, technically. I know it's a relationship too. There's a lot of bumper stickers. We know those. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. We know that. It's a relationship. It's also considered a, a religion by the world. I mean, how they categorize things. And it's the only one that tells the truth about man. It's the only one that's honest enough. That is significant. We shouldn't just pass over that. Now, what was the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Because if we're supposed to be aware of it, I better know what it is. Well, the Pharisees, they were the legalists. They were the ones that added to God's word. The Pharisees, they were the liberals. And I don't mean political liberals. I mean, they were the spiritual liberals. They were the humanists. They were thinking from only human terms when they read the scriptures, and they, they subtracted from God's word. The Pharisees added man-made rules and all these things, and the Pharisees subtracted from God's word. They denied the supernatural. They denied the resurrection from the dead, angels and all those things. And that's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees butted heads so much all the time. They didn't want anything to do with each other, but they hated the Lord Jesus so much that they're willing to unite. You ever had someone like as a kid, you know, you, your enemy with this, this guy over here and you don't talk and you don't have anything to do with each other. And if, you know, if, if he's not careful, he's going to, you know, we're going to talk. We're going to go outside and have some words and, you know, we're, you're, you're positioned against that person. Is this just me? Or I mean, do you guys go to school too? I mean, come on, there's drama that goes on, right? So, so, and then you find out someone that you both hate just as much and, you join up to go up against this person and, and that happens all the time and they weren't above that and it's funny because they, they act like they're so religious and so spiritual and they're doing the same thing that anyone else does in terms of dealing with people that, that they hate. So the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is, is at least 
adding to God. Remember, the whole occasion is that they're wanting a sign. They're, they're not believing God's word. And both adding to and subtracting from God's word are an expression of denying God's word. Both. And, and, and they also acted a certain way like they were better than they actually were. At one point, Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So it's not just bad doctrine, adding to God's word, subtracting from God's word. It's also acting like everything's fine outwardly and religiously. You're looking great. No one knows there's anything going on or problems or anything. And then inwardly, you're not doing well at all. And we, we can do that here, can't we? We can come in. Everything's great. How are you, brother? Doing wonderful. Good to see you. I'm doing great. Yes, wonderful week. And my week was a disaster. But yet I'm acting like it was great. That, that should not happen. I'm not saying we have to tell every single person every little detail about all those things, but they are specific people that the Holy Spirit can bring and we can say, you know what, I need prayer. I need this, I need that. I need God to work in the situation. And that's how we minister to one another. And that's how we ensure that that hypocrisy will not happen. So we can't. We have to be aware of that. It wasn't just these disciples that were at risk. We're at risk. We have to be aware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because we can be so dogmatic about these things. You know, the Hebrew word for Sadducee that they got the word Sadducee from means we are right. <laughs> you know, so there it's like that's where they got their name. They they want to be called we are right. How prideful is that? You know, we could we could do the same thing. So we don't want to add to God's word. We don't want to take away from God's word. That's why we need to know it so well. And we need to build our lives upon it and obey it and so forth. Now we're told in verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Now this Caesarea Philippi is very important. Um, Caesarea was another city on the Mediterranean coast there. And that was started by Herod the Great. And they wanted a little piece of Rome there and so forth. But Caesarea Philippi was up in the north. It's actually 25 miles north of the Galilee region. Remember, Jesus' kind of home base for ministry was Capernaum. It wasn't Nazareth. They didn't receive him. It was Capernaum. That was kind of his home base. Just like Antioch was the Apostle Paul's home base. And all three missionary journeys began from there and ended there. And so that was the kind of the Lord Jesus' home base of Capernaum. But here he goes to Caesarea Philippi, extreme northern part of Israel, just at the base of Mount Hermon. And, and so he's going to start now at this point, and we've talked about the outline, and we'll go over it again in a second. He's going to start preparing his disciples for his departure. We're getting about six months away from the cross at this point, around that, eight, nine to six months away from the cross. So he starts preparing his disciples and starts pouring into his disciples. He wants to get alone with them, and he, many times he, he had a hard time doing that. So we see his public ministry really begin in earnest it at when John was put into prison. Then we see the crisis when he fed the 5,000 and they wanted to make him king by force. And then that's when kind of the year of opposition begins. And now he's in this year of opposition. And, and then the last six, the nine months or so forth in, um, in that time period is when he's making a, a straight line towards Jerusalem. He's pouring into his disciples, getting them ready for his departure and so forth. And so that's, that's why he's there. 
And he asks the question, he's dealing with his disciples. He asks his disciples in the middle of verse 13, we're told that. Well, who do the men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, again, he's, this, he's been in, this is like three years now, public ministry. He's just asking them this question. He's just telling them and re- revealing to, him plain, to them plainly who he is at this late in his public ministry. He wanted them to come to the conclusion on their own with the Holy Spirit working in their lives and, and, and not just telling people plainly there's a timing for all of these things and he would be betrayed and so forth. So you would think that right out of the gate, in the, I mean, the very beginning, he would just speak plainly to them, I'm the promised Messiah, these things are going to happen, and I just want you to know that ahead of time. And everything before that is just revealing the kingdom of God, administering to people, and so he, does, he doesn't do that at all. He lets it unfold to them. And so this is so far down the line in terms of the chronology there. So we ask this question, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they answered, verse 14, so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So he, they give all the, because you know, he wants to know, he wants to get the information, wants them to say the information more specifically. Who do they say that I am? What's the, what's the word on the street? What's my reputation in the sense of what are people, who, who are they? Is it all issues, it's all centered, I should say, around who Jesus is. Everything that revolves around that, he knows it. So he says, who do they say that I am? And they give all these answers and there's all kinds of reasons why they could come to these conclusions. But the common denominator of all of them is they are all wrong. (laughs) They're all wrong. He is who Peter's going to say he is in a minute. That's who he is. And so isn't it true today that he could be so popular that people are wrong about who he is? Some say he's a great prophet. Some say he's a great teacher. Some say he's a great rabbi. Some say he's white and has blue eyes. It's all false. I hate that. He's not Irish with long hair in Israel. He's Jewish. I'm saying I'm sure that they can have light-colored eyes. But he's he was Jewish. I mean, it's so funny to me how they we project our own ideas, and it's usually something related to ourselves. Oh, the Messiah has to be like me, you know, and I'm gonna draw him that way or paint him that way or put him in a movie that way. So there's all these things, and it's so funny, it doesn't matter how popular he is, it doesn't mean that they're going to be any more right (laughs) just because he's popular. But then he asks a very personal question in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? It's a very personal question, because really that's what really matters, right? Is who do we say? We can can say, you know, that the world believes that he is the Son of God, that he is God in human flesh. He's God the Son and the Son of God. We can believe that there are people in this world that say that and believe that and base their lives upon it. But if I don't believe it in my, for myself, then it doesn't do me any good at all. And he knows that. There are many other disciples besides these disciples. Not a whole lot, but there were more than this. And these, it was important for these disciples to believe the correct thing. And so we got someone that raises their hand, so to speak, in verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Ding, 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 ding. Peter got it right. Got the right answer. So he says, You are the Christ. That means the anointed one. That means the Messiah. You are 
the singular Messiah, the anointed one. You are the son of the living God. There is no false dead gods. They don't exist. But there's one true and living God, and you're the son of the living God. And when you were a son of the prophets, you were considered a prophet. It's a saying that you have to share the same nature. When you're the son of so-and-so, you're, you have the same character, you have the same uh, you know, essence, and all those things. It's the same thing. So he's saying that he's the Messiah, and he's divine. He's God in human flesh. There's a great quote and I, many of you have heard it, but I'm going to quote it because there's many of you that probably haven't heard it yet. And it's by C.S. Lewis. And, and he's the one that wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and so forth. But he also wrote a book that I, I wish every Christian would read called Mere Christianity. And it, that Mere Christianity book has, I mean, through that book, so many people have come to know Christ. And basically it's, it demonstrates how moral law, the existence of moral law in our world and our conscience uh, implies a moral lawgiver. And that's evidence that there is a God that's like that because we have a conscience. You know, animals aren't wringing their paws and guilt and feeling bad and, you know, wanting to worship God or anything like that. And we know that 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 standard is there and that standard is higher than what we live. So it can't have evolved from us because it would be at least at the level that we live at if it came from us and it evolved from us, but it's higher than what we live. So it's the first kind of law that's not just descriptive. It's the first kind of law that's prescriptive. It says what kind, what you should do, not about what you are doing, but what you should do. And there's no, it's, it's, it's sacrificial. It's putting others first. It's all those things that goes against the survival of the fittest. There's no possible way that conscience is a result of natural selection or evolution at all. God stamped within each one of us a, a conscience that we can sear as with a, like a hot iron, by repeated rebellion and repeated disobedience and, and, and having our heart get harder and harder and harder. But C.S. Lewis said this, he goes, I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of, uh, uh, on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. He was British. Uh, or else he would have been the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can follow his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Great moral teachers and great prophets do not claim to be God when they're not. Once you claim to be God and you're mistaken, you immediately disqualify yourself from being a good teacher or a good prophet. There's no third category. He's either God's the son of God or he's a lunatic thinking that he is God when he's not or he's a liar when saying that he is God when he knows he's not. There's no other option. And so this, you know, Peter says this and next we see Jesus reveal the source of Peter's confession and it wasn't him. Look with me, verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, and Bar means son of. 
So Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So we can't believe unless God has already revealed himself to us. The Holy, we have to work with the Holy Spirit, wooing us and drawing us to him. And we can't believe and have that confession and know that apart from God at being at work in our lives. And so G- Peter is not merely stating an intellectual position. It's not a position he's taking intellectually. It's his faith confession. It's Peter's belief. But Peter knows this. See, the skeptics and the unbelievers of this world, they can't understand how we can say we know what we know because they say you haven't seen. But isn't God, I, I love asking skeptics this question. I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. I love it. To say, is it possible that God, if he exists, could communicate to me to where I know without seeing? I love that. I hate that question. Well, I guess God could do it. So how do you know that he didn't do it? You just said that it's not possible without me seeing. How do you know that he didn't do it in me? If he could, then how do you know he didn't? Well, I guess I can't say that then. Okay, so I could be right then? Yeah, okay, so I could be right. So you want to hear what I have to say? Yeah, no, whatever it is. You know, it's like, you know, and, and, and I love it because we know this. God is so good at communicating and revealing to us the truth about himself. The Spirit testifies with our spirits that we're children of God. The Bible says that. So we know that we know that we know that Jesus is the Son of God and he's changed us. He's come into our lives. And if you don't know that to that certainty, you may not know Christ. You may not be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You may not be born again yet. You may be religious and go to church and you may have believe in God and agree with the facts of the gospel and give mental assent to it, but you don't have a personal relationship with him. You don't know him. And God wants you to know him. He wants you to have a personal relationship. He died to make that possible. So this was revealed to Peter. Then he says in verse 18, and also I say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Wow, this, this verse, like where do we start with this verse? There's so much there. There's so many doctrines that have been created from this verse, both true and untrue. Where do we start? Well, first of all, we need to understand that the word Peter, the name Peter, Jesus gave him that name. We're we're told that in John chapter 1. Jesus gave him that name. Jonah, Peter's father, Jonah, was named Jonah. He named Peter Simon. Simon and the word, the name Peter have nothing in common. It's not like another way to say Simon. It's completely different. Jonah gave him the name Simon. Jesus comes in and gives him a completely different name, and he gives him the, the name Peter. And in the Greek, it's the word Petros. It means a small stone. You know, when you're a kid, you take those small stones and boom, across the lake, they skip. And you see how many times they can skip? That's Peter. Every time you throw a rock across the lake, I want you to think of Peter. Because that's what, that's what his name means. But then he says, he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now that word rock there, that's a different Greek word. That's the word Petra. There's an actual place in Jordan called Petra because of the rock formation, all the rocks that are, that are there. And what that word means, it means a foundation boulder. Right now, if you go to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, you can go underneath the Temple Mount on the side of it. 
And you can look at the massive foundation stones that are, that are a little bit taller than this wall right here. They're about, they're about a third taller than this wall, I would guess, and, 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 and wider than this section right here. And they're, 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 they're put perfectly next to each other all the way along the wall of where the temple was. And, and there's no space in between them at all. It's, it's, they don't even know how they did it. This Herod's temple. I mean, Herod expanded Solomon's temple and, and did a lot of construction in that. So these are foundation stones. So that's, the, that's what God is doing here. He's kind of, he's doing a play on words. Jesus is doing a play on words. He's, he's not insta- installing the first pope here. He's not, Seriously. I'm not making fun of it. I'm just I'm being honest with you. He's not installing the first pope. And I, you know, what he's doing is he's saying, your name is small stone and upon this foundation boulder, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. If he wanted to say that Peter was the, was the, the, the stone upon which the church was built, he would have said in the Greek, your name is uh, Petros and upon this Petros, I will build my, he doesn't do that. He says, your name is Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. So what is he talking about? He's talking about himself. What did Jesus, or what did, what did uh, Peter rather just say? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's saying, talking about Jesus, and that brings up him to say, your name is small stone, and upon this foundational boulder of me that you just confessed, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter confessed who Jesus was and Jesus said, that's the, that's the foundation upon which I will build my church. Now I want you to hold your place here and turn over to Ephesians 2. And while you're turning there, I want, I want to reveal, or not reveal, but just elaborate or explain or, or mention that all through the Old Testament, God is referred to as the rock. You see it in Deuteronomy 32 in the Song of Moses. Moses calls him the rock, which is interesting because he was disqualified from going into the promised land because he struck the rock and water came out instead of speaking to it like he was supposed to. And at the end of his life, he's referring back to how great God is and he's worshiping God, he's magnifying God. It's much like Mary's, uh, you know, her worship that's expressed in Luke there. And he calls God the rock. And then in Psalm 118, which... Uh, is very messianic. It's talking about that the that God that the Messiah is the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. That's the foundational boulder that that he's referring to here. And then, while I know you're in Ephesians two, I'm going to read to you something though from from uh, Isaiah 28 verse 16, where Isaiah says, "By the Spirit, therefore, thus says the Lord God: Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone." a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. So this is all through the Old Testament. This is nothing new. The Messiah would always be, they knew this from Psalm 118 and other places, the Messiah would always be the chief cornerstone. He would always be the rock. He would always be the foundation foundation boulder, so to speak. And so, you know, he's, he's going to go into this in more depth. Now, again, before we look at Ephesians 2, I do want to mention that the church here, when Jesus talks about the church, it's the first time church is mentioned in the New Testament. And there's only two times the word church appears in the Gospels. It's here and in Matthew 18, when Jesus talked about when two or more are gathered in my name and so forth, I am there in the midst of them. And, and so uh, 
the word means the called out ones. That's what the word church means. It means the called out ones. Those that are called out of this world to serve me, to know me, to have a personal relationship with me. It's never been a building. The church isn't a building. We sometimes we refer come by the church and there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's, you know, it's traditional. But biblically, the church are the people. And the people gather. The church gathers and so forth. So Jesus is building something. He said, I will build my church. He's not talking about a physical building, as we'll see in a moment. Now let's look at Ephesians 2. Look with me. I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So there's our boulder in whom the whole building its talking about a spiritual building being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So this just lays it out. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is that foundational boulder there, and he's building a spiritual church. He's building us up. He's not building a physical building up. He's building us up as we grow. Now turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. We will make it back to Matthew. Don't worry. Hopefully your thumb doesn't get too tired there. First Peter 2, because I want to I want to see what Peter says about this, because if, if Peter supposedly is, you know, Jesus is talking about him, then Peter would would talk about it or elaborate on it or he wouldn't he wouldn't contradict it. We know that. And so Peter's going to talk about who this foundation stone is. Look at first Peter chapter two and let's begin reading in verse four coming to him as to a living stone, talking about Jesus, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. That means all of us. And he's going to say in a couple of verses that, that we are a holy priesthood, that we are, I mean, a priesthood, the priesthood of all believers which means we represent the world to, to, to God in, in intercession and we represent God to the world related to the gospel. That's what a priest does. A priest is a go-between, a mediator. We, we are that in the sense of to the world. We represent the, the, the God to the world and the world to God. Uh, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, Therefore, it also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, Elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. He, he quotes Psalm 118 that I, that I mentioned. Verse 7, Therefore to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So, so Peter identifies who this boulder is. It's the Lord Jesus. It's not himself. There's not a biblical position or office of pope in the New Testament. Look in Ephesians chapter 4. Lists, apostles, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teachers. There's no pope there. So you have if you just a quick look in the Greek and seeing all of this in context, we see exactly what God is talking about. He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. 
He's the, that which the, the church is built upon. Now turn back to Matthew 16. I love the fact that he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Because notice who's building it. Jesus builds the church. And it's his church. He says, my church. It belongs to him. It's, not, it's, it's our church in the sense that we belong to it. But it's his church. He possesses it. None of us, myself included, I don't. It doesn't. I hate when people say, "What do you? Well, what are your plans for your church?" I'm like, I don't have a church. I'm just trying to keep up with what he's doing. Uh, and so he's never called any pastor to build his church when he says he's going to build it. And there's all kinds of models out there and things that people receive in the mail saying this is the secret to building the church and all that. He hasn't called any of us to do that. He calls us to build it up and calls leaders to feed and to tend and to care for. But he doesn't, he adds to the church those who are being saved. And so he's never, Jesus has never been impressed with crowds and crowds doesn't mean necessarily that there's God's blessing because people, there'll be crowds in the last days where people will gather together for themselves, teachers that will tickle their ears or give what their itching ears want to, want to hear and so forth. And he says, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I love that. Because gates are a defensive mechanism for a city. The old cities were, had a big wall around the city and then they had gates. And that was, the, that was the place where if you could penetrate those gates, you could take the city. And so he's not saying that there's these demonic gates that are coming after us on the offensive and they're not going to be successful against our defensive posture against them. He's not saying that. I used to think that. Crazy me. But I, but I was saying that the church is going forward on the offensive. And, and the defensive mechanisms of, of hell cannot withstand the church going forward. And you are the church. We are the church. We are going forward. We are advancing. As long as we're being led by the Spirit and obeying His Word, we are advancing. And there's nothing that the enemy can do to stop it. But what do we say? Oh, all the unbelief that's out there and the government's doing this and woe is us and all that. And God's word says, there's nothing could stop me. I'm inside of you. I'm the one that's building it. You're not building it and nothing can get in the way. It's going to go forward. The church is going to go all the way up to the rapture. After the rapture, it's going to, God's going to save people within the seven year tribulation. Even after that, there's going to become people in the millennium that come to, to, to know Christ. Nothing can stop what he wants to do in and through our lives. We, we are more than conquerors. If he is for us, who can be against us? How many scriptures do we need? We need to be reminded of that. We are on the offensive going forward. And because he's building the church and we're not, he could, we couldn't read that and say that. If, it, if we said we were building the church, if he said, you know, you're building the church, and then he couldn't finish the rest of it because he couldn't say the gates of hell will not prevail against it because we're the ones building it. But because he's building it, we can know that, that the gates of hell will not withstand against all of that. Verse 19, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So he's encouraging Peter here. And it's true for all believers. We've been given the keys of the kingdom. We've been given authority. When I have a key, do I have any, my key on me? Yeah. So I have some keys here. So this is the key to my car. So when I have a key to my a car, I have authority over that car. I control that car. So he's saying you have been given the keys of the kingdom. You've been given authority in the, in the kingdom. And he later says to all the disciples, when you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. And when you retain anyone's sins, they're retained. What is he saying? 
He's saying, if you go by my word and you preach my gospel, then when people accept that gospel, you can be bold and, and believe and know that all of heaven is behind you when you say your sins are forgiven because you walked in line with what scripture says needs to happen for someone to be forgiven. But if someone rejects the gospel and does not believe, when we say your sins aren't forgiven, then all of heaven's behind that because we're getting what we're getting from heaven in his word. And so we have authority over that. So whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Talking about whatever you agree on. And he's going to elaborate on this in, in Matthew 18, just in a couple chapters. Whatever you agree on that's biblical, that's of me, you can be assured that the heaven is behind you because you're reacting and going along with what I've already said is true. I hope that makes sense. Verse 20, then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he, that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Notice he says began to show. This is a process that he's starting here of revealing this to the disciples. He's going to tell them multiple times and they still are not going to get it. They're not going to get it. It, it, they're still not going to understand it. it it's just they, because in their minds are thinking this has to be a political Messiah that'll take us out of Rome's you know, domination and so forth. They just could not grasp it. But again, this is the time where he's starting to prepare the, the disciples for his departure. They need to know that. Then Peter took him aside and to rebuke him saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Rough start for a pope. <laughs> Rough start. Rough start. I mean, he think about that. You take, notice he says he began, he took him aside. So he didn't do it in front of them all. That was good. And took him aside and began to rebuke him. He began to show, he, Peter began to rebuke. And there's two begans there and one separated by, by uh, uh, you know, uh, one verse. And he said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Don't you think the enemy was telling the Lord Jesus that consistently? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You think it's going to happen? You know, it's, he's speaking the things that, have not, that are not of God. And so he says, get behind me, Satan. You're representing Satan right now. You are saying the things that Satan would say. And you are an offense to me. By saying that, you are offending me right now. And you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Because he's, Peter's just, he doesn't want him to ever leave anything to happen to him. And, and he just is, it's, it's self-focused, right? It's, I'm sure it's for reasons that related to himself. And, and, and we can relate to that. But he, he's just completely, I mean, one moment, and this is encouragement to us that you can have a revelation from God and then the next moment you can be totally saying things that are not of God at all. And, and, and it just is it's encouraging because we can miss it the same way. Now, he wasn't indwelt by the Spirit yet. We are. So there is a difference there. But still, he, he, he missed it. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? 
Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Very, 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 very important key to discipleship. And it goes completely against American churchianity. A lot of what a lot of people hear in different places, and they hear a lot of things about life improvement, self-improvement, being success. I want to give you success principles. And so many of those things, have a, they may have a great desire to help people and so forth, but they end up helping someone not deny themselves. And people end up not taking up their cross and dying to self and not you know, dying to what they want to do, but actually they're encouraged to follow your dreams and your goals and set out a five-year plan and a 10-year plan. And what is it that's the desire of your heart? God wants to give you the desire of your heart and all these things that are little kernels of truth in them, but leaving out all of the dying to self, leaving out uh, putting God first and seeking first the kingdom and, and, and investing in his resources first instead of investing in mine and all these things that sound just they sound appealing to people who doesn't want a successful prosperous life and god may have that for us but if we only get to find out that by by finding out what his definition of prosperous is he has a completely different definition of what prosperity is the disciples weren't they all would end up giving their lives as a result of this all but john died for their faith i'm not talking about judas i'm talking about the other 11 they all died for their faith. Uh, John died of old age, but they, they tried to, to boil him in oil. And then after that didn't work, they banished him to the Isle of Patmos where he received the revelation. And then he died in Ephesus as an old man there. So they all gave up completely everything and didn't get anything in return in the sense of worldly things to a point. But God does bless us. He does give us material things. There, there is a, There's a Bible for that. But it has to come by us not chasing after it. And that's the, the big difference. I don't want to, he doesn't want us to learn a bunch of principles how I can learn how to chase after it as a Christian. I'm supposed to take up my cross. That's, that's like saying taking up the electric chair. Taking, it's, it, was, it was the way that, that you received the, the death penalty. Take, taking up our cross, dying to self. God doesn't want our, our flesh reformed. He wants it dead. Then it has to be crucified repeatedly. It doesn't just happen one time. And we have to say, I'm going to follow you wherever you want me to go. I will lose my life for, for your sake. I don't want to gain the whole world. My goal isn't to try to do that. My goal is to give all of everything to him as worship and, and whatever he lets stay, I'm content with. Paul talked about the secret of being content in every circumstance, whether he abounds or he's wealthy for the moment or he's poor for the moment. He's learning to, to be to having the secret of contentment. And, and that's what Philippians talks about. And that's the key to a fulfilled life. And then he says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, I want us just to read the first couple verses of chapter 17. Just coming attractions here for next week. <laughs> now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up, up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. See, that's what I believe he's talking about in verse 28. 
the word kingdom can be translated royal splendor. So they till they see the Son of Man coming in his royal splendor. And there's no chapter breaks and verses in the original writing. That was added centuries and centuries later. And it, it's unfortunate here because it really connects it to verse 28 if there wasn't that break there. And, and Matthew is not, it's not common for Matthew to get really specific on these days that pass. It's all general things that happen. He's not, but look how he says six days. Now after six days, he's, he's emphasizing that not much time had passed between the time that, that the Lord Jesus said this and the time that it was fulfilled. And, and we know that Peter, James, and John, they saw Jesus transfigured or transformed before them. So I believe that's what he's talking about. So that's the chapter. There's so much about just following what Jesus said to follow, doing what Jesus said to do, obeying what Jesus said to obey, and being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. For us to beware of the leaven of the, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to not add or take away from God's word, to re- recognize that his revelation that Jesus is the Son of God is not something that we came up with on our own. That has been revealed to us by God supernaturally, and we know that. We know it, that it's true. Without seeing, And then he wants us to take up our cross daily and follow him. And that's the key to the abundant life. He he said that he wants man to live abundantly. But that means to following Christ. And and if we suffer with him, we'll also receive um, the glory that he had as well with his resurrected body. And that's encouraging for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this great, great chapter. We, We know, Lord, we haven't even done justice to exploring it today. But we pray, Lord, that the verses that you want to have us focus on and you want to change us with, Lord, that we would be open to all of those things. I pray, Lord, that this church, your church that you're building, would be so receptive to what you want to do and be open and willing and be spirit-directed, be other-centered, all the things that you want, Lord. And we pray that this would be a biblical New Testament church that you receive glory from. Help us to not try to help you out. Help us to not get in your way. Help us just to let you build your church the way you want it to be built. Help us, Lord, myself included, get out of the way and let you do what only you can do so that you can receive all the glory. Thank you, Jesus. You haven't given us any grace to build your church. We don't want anything to do with it. We want you to do what you said you want to do. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.